Investing Compass is brought to you by Morningstar Australia. We'll run through the fundamentals of investing, take a deep dive of concepts and offer practical explanations, tools and resources that will allow you to invest confidently. The information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. All right, Shani. So today we are going to talk about technology stocks, which is a nice change. It is another group that's done really well. We've recently talked about GameStop, um, another stock that did well. And we actually met up with your sister last week, right, for drinks and we your did. sister. We had some beers. And yeah. it was a very strange place to have beers because they only had like Great Northern and what, what else did they like? Victoria Bitter, VB? That is true. That is true. I can't believe you said Victoria Bitter. But <laughs> anyway, your sister argued with me about GameStop. And after she had a couple beers, she told me that I sound like Seth Rogen. And then she told me I look like Seth Rogen, both of which were troubling. But anyway, we'll it see if somebody wants worse. to. It could, it could be, be worse. Yeah, it could be worse. Probably not. But <laughs> anyway, we'll talk about another high-flying, not quite as high-flying as GameStop, but high-flying sector-day technology stocks. And we're focused on technology stocks today, of course, because of how they performed. So we're going to talk about two different things. We're going to talk about the technology sector, and that is one of the 11 sectors that we divide companies up into here at Morningstar. And a sector is simply a group of companies that have similar characteristics. But we're going to focus on five specific stocks that have had an outsized influence on market returns in the U.S. So we're going to talk about Facebook, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple. So, Shani, why don't we start with the technology sector? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so our definition of the technology sector is companies engaged in the design, development, and support of computer operating systems and applications. And this sector also includes companies that provide computer technology consulting services. So it's pretty pretty important to note that the five companies that Mark outlined don't all fall into this technology sector, as one might think. Um, so Amazon is, of course, a retailer, and it falls into the consumer cyclical sector. But although it seems pretty natural for Facebook and Google to fall into tech, they both fall into communication services. Okay. So either way, and I guess I alluded to this in the beginning, why are we dedicating an entire episode to technology and these five stocks? I'll tell you, Mark. So this sector has been performing really well for a number of years and investors are always interested in things that perform well. And on top of that, because of strong performance, technology has become an increasingly large part of many indexes. So even if you are a passive investor, you should be pretty focused on the performance of technology because it'll impact your performance on your portfolio. Okay, so let's talk about that performance. So the U.S. technology sector has been the top performing sector over a 15, 10, 5, and 3-year time period. And the one-year return is close to 43%. And over the past 15-year period, the return has been close to 13.5% a year. And those are pretty mind-blowing returns. So if you would have invested $10,000 in the U.S. technology sector 15 years ago, you would have over $66,000 today. And as technology has outperformed, it has become a bigger part of indexes. So in 2008, during the financial crisis, tech stocks made up 15% of the S&P 500 index. And in mid-December 2020, it made up close to 28% of the index. And this growth in allocation is a reflection of how share prices in technology have outperformed. And this causes them to be a larger part of the index. And the last time it was this high was in 1999, when it peaked at 33%, right before the dot-com bubble burst. 
And the domination of the index becomes a little more apparent when we break it down more and look at the five companies I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. The biggest company in the S&P 500 and the world is Apple. When I checked in mid-February, Apple made up 6.35% of the index. The second largest holding is Microsoft at 5.37%. Amazon is 4.29%. Google weighs in at 3.74%. And Facebook is at 1.94%. That was a lot of percents, but individually, to put this in perspective, each of these companies is bigger than four of the 11 sectors in the S&P 500, utilities, materials, real estate, and energy. If you add Amazon and Microsoft together, they make up more of the index than those four sectors combined. And collectively, these five companies make up 22.14% of the S&P 500. The smallest 360 companies in the 500 company index make up approximately the same percentage. So these companies make up a significant and growing percentage of the S&P 500. And the bigger percentage of the index they make up, the more they drive overall returns. So Shani, let's take a look back on the impact these five companies have had on returns. Yeah, so this is where we need to spend a little bit of time talking about how an index works. Um, so most indexes are market cap weighted indexes. So as we've explained, the bigger the companies, the more of the index they make up. Aside from market cap, there's also equal weighted indexes. And with equal weighted indexes, each company makes up the same percentage of the index. So investing in that index means the same amount of your money goes into the largest stock as the smallest. When we look at returns between a market cap weighted index and an equal weighted index, we can see how the performance of some of the largest companies is impacting overall returns. That's right, Shani. So if we go back to the end of 2017, an S&P 500 equal weighted index returned 5%. Meanwhile, the market cap weighted index, which is what is always quoted, has returned 23%. So that is a pretty clear indication that the largest companies are driving the return of the overall index. This became even more pronounced during the COVID market dip and subsequent rally in 2020. If we look at that period from the beginning of 2020 to the end of September 2020, the equal weighted index was down 8%, while the market cap weighted index was up 2%. It's estimated that since the end of 2017, the five companies we're looking at accounted for 72% of the overall index performance. If we expand the same size, uh, the sample size a little bit bigger and start including other large companies, we can see that 15 companies out of the 500 accounted for approximately 96% of the gain. So what that really means is that the return of the other 485 companies over the last three years have essentially been flat. So let's talk about what this means as investors. There are a couple things to look at here. First, let's look at passive investors. And then, of course, we can turn our attention to active investors. The theory behind passive investing is pretty simple. It's really difficult to beat the market by picking individual shares and you pay high fees to professionals to even have them attempt it. So why not just invest in an index? But as we said, when taking this approach, it is important to look at the actual index and the risks associated with it. That's right, Mark. So with so much of the index concentrated in technology shares and the five companies we're discussing today, it stands to reason that the future returns of this sector and those five companies is going to have a disproportionate impact on passive returns. And in a minute, we'll take a look at some clues into their future prospects. But first, let's talk a little bit about active managers. So for active managers, it is a pretty simple story to tell. Active managers that had technology shares in at least some of these five companies in their portfolio did well. 
and had a real shot at outperforming the market. If you didn't have them in your portfolio, you had no shot. We did an earlier episode on picking funds and ETFs, and we saw this play out in the two actively managed funds we picked to compare. One of those funds was a value fund that did not have a large allocation to technology shares, and it had pretty dramatically trailed the index. So if we look into the future, at this point, if you're an active manager, your call on technology stocks and these five dominant companies will literally make or break your future returns. If they underperform dramatically and you are not invested in them, it is very likely that you will beat the index as they will disproportionately drag it down. So if technology and the five companies we're looking at are going to have such an impact on returns, we should take a look at the valuation of these companies and their prospects going forward. But first, why don't we talk about why investors like these companies so much? And one of the reasons that investors like technology companies is because they're asset-like companies. So why don't you explain that for us, Shani? Yeah. So let's go back to the fundamentals of how a company makes money. Historically, it took a lot of assets to produce the goods and services that they sell. An example of this is that a lot of companies would have had to build factories to produce the goods that they sold. And as companies expanded, they had to build more factories in order to sell more goods. And building all of these factories cost a lot of capital, but also had to be carried on the balance sheet as an asset and maintained. So in this model, the more assets a company has, the better it is for the company. And this is because assets are needed to make money. Let's contrast this with an asset-like company. An asset-like company can produce the goods and services that they sell without a lot of assets that go on balance sheet lines for property, plant, and equipment. Okay, so let's use a couple examples to bring this to life. We can start with Uber. So Uber is a classic example of an asset-like company. Uber doesn't own the cars that are used for its service. It also doesn't have that many employees since the drivers are contractors. The company has an app, and that had to be built, and it needs to be maintained. And that basically just allows them to act as a middleman in transactions between a driver and a customer. And what does this enable Uber to do? It enables them to scale their business. They've expanded worldwide very quickly especially when you think about what it would take to build out a traditional taxi company in the same manner. The amount of cars that would have to be purchased, the number of employees that would need to be hired in order to buy all those cars, drive them, and maintain them. The amount of capital that would be required to do all this would be tremendous. So let's use one more example. Since you say that you are the queen of social media, why don't you talk about Instagram, Shanika? I don't think I've ever said that in my life. (laughs) Okay, well, you like it social media. Okay. We became Instagram friends two we years did. ago. We did. So, I think that was the start of our friendship, to be honest. Yeah. And it's working out well, right? Yeah, I think so. So um, Instagram is a classic example of an asset-like company. In 2012, Facebook bought Instagram and the company was two years old at the time and it had been downloaded by 27 million people. Um, but Facebook thought it was so promising that it bought Instagram for 1 billion US dollars. At the time this happened, Instagram had 13 employees building a company that was acquired for a billion dollars and had 27 million customers would have been pretty unthinkable just a generation before. That scale just simply wasn't possible. Do you think somebody would pay us a billion dollars for this, for investing Compass? I mean, we only we only have three people working on it. So that's pretty asset light, right? Um, and I didn't I haven't checked recently. Do we have 27 million listeners? Well, I, I think your wisdom is pretty priceless, Mark. So I don't think you can put a price tag on that. 
Yeah, that's that's what I've heard. I'll show you my pay stub. There's a pretty clear <laughs> price tag on my wisdom, and okay. it's not much. Um, so you can think of ways to spend your windfall, Mark, but let's um, talk a little bit about what it takes to start a tech company. So it really isn't too far from that stereotype of a couple of people with laptops because we have cloud computing now. You don't really need that much infrastructure, um, more than just a couple of computers and a space to work. All right, so we should put our investor hats on as opposed to the sombrero that I took a picture of you wearing this weekend. But if we put on our investor hats, let's take a look at the financial statements. And, you know, I'll start going through this, Shawnee, but I'm, of course, not the one whose mother thinks I'm an accountant, but, uh, but I know a little bit about some of these, uh, some of these financial statements. So we're going to go back in time. So we'll go back to 1999. So remember, that's the same year we we're talking about where the tech sector made up a larger portion of the S&P 500 than it does now. And I'm certainly not going to ask you what you were doing in 1999, because that will be embarrassing for me. But uh, but we're going to instead look at what GE was doing in 1999, so General Electric. So GE has been through a lot of hard times lately, but that was not the case in 1999. So Jack Welch was in charge, and he was one of the most popular CEOs of all time. And GE was the second biggest company in the world. And ironically, it was trailing only Microsoft. And as I said, that was the height of the dot-com bubble. Now, Microsoft, of course, is the second largest company right now, which we mentioned earlier. So we're going to look at GE in 1999 and compare its financial statements to some of the top firms right now to illustrate why investors like them so much. So let's start off with margin. These new tech companies or technology-enabled companies often have really high margins. And operating margin refers to the difference between the top line and the bottom line, so the difference between revenue and the amount the company earns. What's between those two lines on the income statement is all the costs of earning that revenue. If we go back to Instagram, Instagram was able to get 27 million customers with only 13 employees. Chances are, though, if they had more time, they could have grown that customer base with those same employees. Yeah, so that's right, Shanika. So all as all these companies scale or grow, they don't have to dramatically increase their workforce or assets like property, plant, or equipment. So that means that the new profits they make often just flow directly to their bottom line. So over time, as they grow their revenue, their margin often increases. Now, GE was an excellent company in 1999, and their margin compared favorably to some of the giant companies today. And if you remember, they were very, very focused on cost savings, Six Sigma, and all the efficiency involved. So GE had a net profit margin in 1999 of a little over 22%. So the purest of the internet companies exceed this. So both Microsoft and Facebook have net profit margins of over 33%. Companies like Apple and Google match G's profit margin, while Amazon comes in much lower at only around 5.5%. And that actually makes sense, given their business model is trying to sell goods for cheaper than the competition. So let's turn our attention to return on assets. Return on assets is an indicator of how profitable a company is relative to the amount of assets a company has. And we like this as investors because it means it doesn't take a bunch of capital for a company to earn profits. And that capital has to come from somewhere. So it either comes from debt, it comes from cash the company generates that isn't flowing to shareholders, or it comes from raising more equity capital than that can dilute um, current shareholders. Yeah. Now, that return on capital is an area where we can see the impact of these asset light models. 
GE was not an asset-like company since many of their product lines involved manufacturing. GE has a return of assets of 2.64%. So this pales in comparison to some of the companies we've been talking about. Amazon is the lowest of the five with a return on assets of 7.81% or a little under three times what GE was able to generate. Facebook heads up the group at close to 20%, with the other three companies all above 13.5%. And we can see what assets these companies hold by taking a look at the balance sheet. As you would expect from Mark's description of GE, they would have a slightly different profile. So in 1999, GE had about 2% of their assets in cash, and that's because a good deal of their assets were in property, plant and equipment, and also financing receivables. So helping their customers finance their purchases of GE products. When we turn our attention to the five companies that we're looking at today, we see that their main asset is cash. When we look at Amazon, they have the lowest percent of cash on their assets and they come in at 26%. Facebook and Microsoft have over 45% cash. These cash piles that these companies have built up are huge. Microsoft and Google each have $136 billion in cash on their balance sheets. And I think that's slightly less than what we have on our balance sheet at Investing Compass. Yeah, we've got approximately $25, which we're going to use for our next celebration when we hit a milestone, but it will be, uh, it will be a good time. Um, and you know, this, this cash really actually makes sense. So these companies don't have to invest as much in infrastructure or employees as they continue to expand. So with their margins increasing as they grow with scale and the reinvestment needs minimal to support that growth, they're just generating lots and lots of cash. Clearly, that cash is building up on their balance sheet, but they're also using it to return to shareholders. For example, Google's bought back $50 billion in shares over the past three years, and that is good for shareholders because it reduces the amount of shares outstanding, which means as an investor, you are entitled to a larger percentage of future profits. We've seen this with Google as their total shares outstanding have reduced by close to 3% during this time period. The other thing that all this cash allows them to do is literally acquire the competition. The perfect example is what we were talking about before when Facebook bought Instagram. So generating lots of cash certainly puts these companies in a strong position. So the business model of tech companies have a lot of things going for them. As we talked about, they're capital light, they scale, and this leads to high margins, and they have high returns on assets and the ability to generate huge amounts of cash. These advantages are reflected in the Morningstar moat ratings that our analysts assign to these companies. So a company with a moat is one that has a sustainable competitive advantage, and these sustainable competitive advantages are reflected in the ability to maintain high market share and high margins. Of the five companies that we're discussing, four have wide moat ratings and Apple has a narrow moat rating. Our analysts believe wide moat companies can maintain their sustainable competitive advantage for at least 20 years and narrow moat ratings for 10 years. Yeah, so these five companies that have grown to make up such a large percentage of the S&P 500 and have played such an outsized role in driving market returns are clearly great companies. But that is only half of what is needed for a great investment. Great investment means buying a great company at a compelling price. So we need to turn our attention to valuation now. So Shani, let's start with looking at how much investors are currently paying for earnings at these companies. So we can take a look at the price to earnings ratio of these companies, and that's how much an investor is willing to pay for a dollar of earnings. In every case, investors are willing to pay more than the market average for these five companies. So this ranges from a low of 26 times earnings for Facebook to a high of close to 80 times earnings at Amazon. Since price to earnings is a relative valuation measure, we do need to compare it to something, and that is the S&P 500, which is trading at around 22 times earnings. 
So by just looking at the P-E ratio, it appears that these companies are expensive. But it is always important to remember that the P-E ratio is backward looking. It is comparing earnings a company has already generated. But as an investor, I'm interested in what is going to happen in the future. So it's the future earnings where the value of a company actually lies. And there's this great quote um, by famed value investor Bill Miller that sums this up. So he says, 100% of the information you have about a company represents the past, while 100% of the value depends upon the future. So, Shani, I'm going to ask you to predict the future now. So what is going to happen with these companies? Okay. So this is where the art of investing comes in. And as we've discussed previously, the way that you value a share is by estimating future cash flows that a company will earn, and that's what our analysts do here at Morningstar. They use those future estimated cash flows to calculate a fair value, which is an amount that we believe a company is worth. We can then compare what we think it's worth to the current share price, and that gives us a view on whether we think the company is under or overvalued. And in this case, we believe that four out of the five companies are undervalued in mid-February when we're recording this. So we see Google, Amazon, and Facebook as being approximately 20% undervalued, Microsoft around 8% undervalued, and the outlier is um, Apple being close to 40% overvalued. This compares to an overall U.S. market that our analysts see as being approximately 9% overvalued. All right, Shani. So we have great companies that, according to our analysts, are mostly trading at somewhat interesting valuations. They certainly don't meet the definition of being really cheap, but our analysts also don't think that they are really expensive. All of the companies have built huge market share in their respective industries. They are still growing quickly, and they continue to generate huge amounts of cash. So once again, Shani, you get you get all the future predictions. <laughs> so what could derail these companies? Uh, well, one risk that almost universally applies to the business models of these companies is regulatory risk. And that is a risk that legal or legislative action could impact their ability to continue along their path. And there are two broad categories of scrutiny that they're falling under. And the first is antitrust. And there are numerous laws on the books that allow governments to break up companies that grow too big or turn into monopolies. Um, so if we look at digital advertising, almost 70% of the ad spent in the US is estimated to go to Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Amazon is estimated to make up close to 40% of e-commerce sales. Now, since the 1980s, the interpretation of antitrust laws, at least in the U.S., where all these companies are headquartered, is that a company would only be broken up if their actions were leading to bad consumer outcomes. And it's been hard to argue this for many of these companies. After all, Facebook products like WhatsApp, Instagram, and of course, Facebook itself are all free. Same goes for Google Search, Google Maps, YouTube are all free. Amazon, of course, charges for their products, but they've done this and they've won market share by reducing prices for consumers. However, we are starting to see some talk of changing how these laws are interpreted and instead have them focused on market share. And that would certainly impact these companies. And the more immediate concern for many of these companies stems from the fact that these products are free and there is increasing awareness that these free products are only free because they are selling your data. So privacy advocates have long targeted these companies and there's growing awareness that your data is being used to increase the amount of time you spend on these platforms so more ads can be served. And these ads can be used to sell products but also ideas as well as political ideologies and misinformation. The bottom line is that the growing market cap of these companies has also meant growing power and influence over society and brought scrutiny from governments and the public at large. So I think it's definitely a risk we have to be aware of as we move forward. 
All right. Well, that fell slightly short of a prediction of the future, but、uh, <laughs> but where do you get your predictions for the future, Mark? Um, I go to that cocktail bar, and there's a psychic. There, there's a big neon sign that says psychic. And yeah, you have a few drinks and get your fortune told. I do, I do. I've, I've only done that once, however. Have you asked her about tech stocks? I have not. I have not. Or at least I do not remember what she told me. But、uh, <laughs> but anyway, maybe I'll go see her tonight. Yeah.、Um, we've、uh, we've covered a lot of ground here. So why don't we go through a couple takeaways from today's episode? So tech is making up larger and larger share of many in. Indexes, most notably the S and P 500. Tech sector makes up the highest percentage of the S and P 500 since the dot com bubble. In particular, five companies—Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft—make up more than 20% of the index and have been responsible for the majority of the returns. Most companies have not performed well over the past three-year period. Given how much technology and the five companies we discussed make up of the index, they will be the driver of future returns. They do well; the index will do well. If they falter, the index will falter. The business model of these tech companies and tech-enabled companies is exactly what investors are looking for. They require little capital to build and expand, and their ability to scale means that as they grow, more of the growth flows to the bottom line. They generate huge amounts of cash that aren't needed to support growth and can be returned to investors. These advantages flow from the sustainable competitive advantage or moat that many of these companies possess. And then finally, according to our analysts, most of these companies are still moderately undervalued, but there are regulatory and legal headwinds that may impact these business models that investors love so much. And in terms of resources, I'd recommend reading the research reports that our analysts publish. They're all available on Morningstar Premium, which you can access with a free four-week trial. Okay, so let's wrap this up here. So we learned a lot of things. We also learned that I have a picture of Shani in a sombrero. So, <laughs> but I also have a picture of you in a sombrero, Mark. That is true. That is true. Dueling pictures, but please. Com- uh, leave comments on the podcast. Leave ratings. If you have any questions or future show suggestions, or my- if you'd like to see the picture of Mark in a sombrero, or if you'd like <laughs> to see the sombrero pictures, there is an email address. My email address in the show notes. So send that over, and you can have a Mexican-themed day with Investing Compass. So thank you very much for joining. Any advice is general advice prepared by Morningstar without reference to your financial objectives, situation, or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest.